I had the pleasure of speaking to author Sachiaki Takamiya. He's a biohacker, a health advocate, a naturalist who explores and combines from Japanese health practices and philosophies, along with modern Western biohacking and longevity practices. He's based out of Hino, Shiga, Japan. He's written several books, one of which I recently read called Ikigai Biohacking. That's one of his books that really combines and mixes and advocates for this blend of Japanese natural health philosophy, along with other scientific discoveries and practices that are practical in their advice and application. I discovered Takamiya-san in his popular YouTube series is on natto. Natto is a fermented Japanese soybean product, and I was trying to develop and make my own natto bacteria starter. Takamiya-san is one of the few people who actually has videos on this kind of esoteric process of making your own starters to make natto. Anyway, discovering the breadth and scope of his writing, his research, I had the pleasure of speaking with him this weekend on his biography, how he keeps an independent spirit, his approach, his past, what he does in his practical life. And I think Takamiya-san is particularly interesting and useful as a contact to other contemporary biohackers coming from the West who are really particularly interested in longevity and wellness. Takamiya-san offers more of a naturalist approach, something that's, I think, more rounded and grounded. He has a flexibility and an awareness that I think can be applicable to anyone's life. And what's nice about his model is that it can be universal, simple to implement, natural, and does not rely on kind of a commercialized model. I really enjoyed speaking with Takamiya-san. I hope you listen and enjoy and learn something. I recommend his books, his blog, his newsletter, and thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy. Well, uh, Takamiya-san, I know it's early and the start of the week, so I really appreciate your time. And I hope uh, one of your concepts, the Sampo Yoshi, well, it's not your concept, but a Japanese business concept. I hope we yeah, can. Yeah, the Omi Machan's concept. Yeah. Yeah. I hope we can be productive today. I've really enjoyed some of your content. And I've been, um, like I said, I first discovered you when I was making Nato at home. And then I kind of yeah. went super into a deep dive on Nato and making Nato at home, Instapot. And then I started trying to yeah. make my own Nato starter. And I was buying Nato starter and using the commercial Nato and having success with that. But uh, right. You're you're one of the only people I could find in English with information about making natto starter. So that was very interesting, and thank you for that. So I appreciate oh, no, that. So so you mean natto starter like making natto from like wild, wild plants? Correct. That, that's yes. what you mean by making your own starters. Yeah? Yes, like using so, a natural source. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because there's so many resources to make natto from the commercial yeast, uh, well, the bacteria. That's available, yeah. either buying starter. But I thought it was fascinating that you know you share that information on how to make the actual starter from the rice plant. So right. Um, I mean, maybe we. Why don't we? You know, I, again, thank you so much for your time. But for people who aren't familiar with your work, um, Takamiya-san. Well, uh, I suppose yeah. Well, I am a writer, but uh, well, maybe the ikigai biohacking promoter now or the ikigai diet promoter yeah so i basically um, share information on health and longevity like how to stay young and healthy and kind of increase your health span not so much about lifespan but health span yeah to stay active 
until you die. Yeah. And then, but this method is based on Japanese natural health. It's kind of more oriental sort of approach. And that's uh, involved some philosophical kind of pa- perception too. So in a way, uh, I am a philosopher as well. I'm not um, established as a philosopher. I mean, I don't have an academic background in philosophy. I didn't study philosophy in university or anything like that. But I have been searching for the meaning uh, all my life. I mean, the meaning to to live and how to be happy, how to personally become happy, and how to make society happy too. So in that sense, uh, yeah, I, I can call myself a philosophy of life or philosophy of happiness. Maybe we can start with your biography before you started releasing your books. I'm curious, there's kind of an accent from the UK in the way you speak English. Did you study yeah. in the UK or could you give us a little bit of biography of where you, if you were working or, you know, where you learned English and just some of your nice. background? Okay, okay, sure. Yeah. So I'm Japanese and I live in Japan now and I was born in Japan. I grew up in Japan. And in my early 20s, I spent about six years living in English speaking countries. The first country I went to was Australia. I went there when I was 19. Uh, on working holiday, actually. And then uh, I lived in Britain for four years, yeah, in my early 20s. And then finally Canada for one year. Yeah. So uh, I spent sort of uh, six years in English-speaking countries, and but the Britain was the longest. So that's why maybe I have a, you know, influence from the British accent. Although, in Japan, we encounter a lot of North Americans, you know, Canadians and Americans. And so I have spent so much time with North American people, too. So I, I do have a kind of a mixed influence from different different English-speaking cultures. What was your first, um, where did you grow up in Japan? In, in Tokyo. And what was your exposure to the West? I mean, what was your experience going to Australia? I mean, we, maybe we can start with food. I'm just curious how you... <laughs> Well, you're shocked or, you know, what was your first impression of uh, what were you like as a 20-year-old man? Oh, oh yeah. So it was, uh, well, the one thing was the language. The language was very difficult. I didn't understand anything uh, at that time. So it was shocking to be in a world where you don't understand the language. I felt like I, you know, lost my ability to communicate for the first time in li- my life. So that was very shocking. And the second thing was the culture. The culture was very different. The way people do things, the way people think, the way people communicate. Like, for example, in Japan, we have a kind of polite language and we use a different language to superior or the people who are older. But in English, basically, you don't really have that kind of polite language you sort of speak equally to most people and that was very new things for me so i mean that cultural aspect was uh, very impressive to me but also the universality the fact that i mean japan especially around that time uh we didn't have that many people coming from other countries yeah basically the only japanese people but in Australia, there are people from all over the world. There are Vietnamese, there are uh, Europeans, and 
Indonesians and and and, and Chinese too. So I have yeah, I did meet people from all over the world, and that broadened my my world view very much. While you were abroad, were you studying or working? Or you said you had a working visa. What was what, what yeah. kind of work so, were you doing? Do, do you know about working holiday? Working holiday is a uh, kind of a, a visa where you're allowed to work um, during your stay, and it's sort of a but you, you can stay up to one year. And then Japan had a working holiday kind of a visa agreement with Australia, Canada, and now New Zealand, and and also with Britain too. So. I I didn't go to university or anything in Australia. I just uh, kind of had a holiday, but I did work sometime during my stay. But I stayed there for about about one year. Well, I'm just curious if if that experience has all influenced what you're doing now, because you know the way I read your work, you know, you have a, a title in Japanese, the Hyakusho Revolution, and I would Hyakusho consider Revolution. yeah, I would consider your 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 philosophy to be under what I call maybe the Lohas movement in Japan, kind of uh, organic lifestyle, alternative lifestyle. You mean like Lohas? Lohas? Yeah, yeah, Lohas. You know, Masanobu, Fukuoka, and kind of emerging from that kind of troll farming, regenerative farming. You know, there's a history of that in Japan, but there's also the traditional kind of salaryman lifestyle in Tokyo, the super hyperized, commercialized, processed food culture of Japan. So there's those two... So I, I was just wondering if your experience in the West being totally kind of shaken language-wise, maybe either liberated or influenced your work, you know, when you went yeah. back to Japan. So, yeah, yeah, it did very much. Yeah. Not so much in Australia, though, because that was the first year so I was kind of struggling with the language. But when I went to Britain, so I was more fluent in English, so I could communicate with the people there. I could sort of have a lot of discussion with people, you know, talking about philosophy and politics and all kind of thing. So that's when I encountered the more kind of alternative culture of the Western world. So I, I went to uh, Emerson College, which is a college of Rudolf Steiner. Uh, so are you familiar with Steiner, like Steiner School? Waldorf, yes, my, 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 school. My, my daughter goes to a Waldorf school, so I'm very familiar. Oh, really? With yeah? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. So, yeah, I encountered, uh, you know, philosophy of Rudolf Steiner and then many people who came to Amazon College were interested in the alternative uh, way of living and, you know, natural way of living and spirituality and so on. So in England, I encountered what was then called the New Age movement, but not only the spiritual movement, yeah, there was a kind of a strong environmental movement too. Um, at that time in Britain, the green politics was still not so big compared to Germany. Well, then it was called the West Germany. Um, but um, there was a growing movement of people who are interested in organic farming and using uh, n- natural medicine and and so, yeah, basically, I encountered the whole movement of people who want to change their lifestyle to, yeah, find kind of holistic uh, solutions to their their happiness and also uh, socialness too. So, the time in England influenced me a lot in today's my my views. Although since then, 
um, you know, I kind of went through different uh, transitions to, um, but but eventually I have come kind of come back to that idea of uh, a sustainable lifestyle. And then when you came back to Japan, what year was this? Um, I came back to Japan in 1988. Yeah, 1988. Yeah. So the bubble was still ongoing. It was beginning to, the bubble economy was, uh, we're hitting the bubble economy period. Yeah. So from 88 and 89, and I think in 90, yeah, uh, I lived in Japan and experienced the bubble economy. So that time in, Japan, especially Tokyo, was completely different or almost the opposite of what I experienced in England. Because I I basically was immersed in this alternative culture where people are not materialistic at all. And then you came back to Tokyo where everything was materialistic. People were only interested in making money or fashion, uh and 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 the whole world. Um, even the foreign people I met in Tokyo were completely different from the type of people I was familiar with back in Europe. So, yeah, that that was a another interesting experience for me to go through that because at that time I was a little disillusioned with the whole New Age movement, and so in a way. Um, meeting different kind of people was uh, stimulating in a way to just see different uh, point of view. Yeah, but, but but again, you know, I'm not interested in materialistic side at all now. So, as as an experience, it was a uh, it was good for me that time. Yeah, and then but there was a natural movement in Japan too, even in the 80s. Um, but I think compared to Europe. Uh, it, it was very small, and the people who are leading alternative lifestyle was um, much more in the minority, yeah, than in in Britain, yeah. And then for the first maybe two or three years of my stay in Tokyo that time, I did not encounter any of those alternative Japanese people. So, but later when I Maybe I think um, maybe after my in my forties, yeah, I, I encountered a lot of Japanese naturalists, and today I have many friends who are naturalists. What I call shizenka, well, it is called shizenka in Japanese. So maybe we can start going there because I think that's one of your core concepts in your kind of five area biohacking i guess the you know the natural shizenka maybe you can start there what what how would you describe the shizenha or the shizenka lifestyle and purpose yeah shizenha yeah. uh, people um basically mean naturalist and japanese naturalist and they um many of them uh moved to the countryside from big cities to lead a natural lifestyle. So they uh, they have a garden, like vegetable garden, and grow vegetables organically, or they might use natural farming method, which is a little different from organic farming. You don't cultivate the land, and you don't use any fertilizers, 
and you just let and you do some weeding but not too much you just uh, let um nature take care of the you know the growing the vegetables yeah so some people uh, practice uh either natural or organic farming and then they uh, grow their children naturally and so and then yeah th th those are shizenha people and then um for example i i live in a small rural town in Shiga prefecture which is near kyoto and in our town we have a big network of shizenha people there are many shizenha people living in our town and we have a network called local network and initially we were meeting once a month uh, but now we don't really meet once a month but we still have a network and occasionally we we meet and we often bump into each other in in our town some some people runs an organic cafe other people run a free school and and we have a group to promote organic school lunch we were negotiating with our town hall to introduce organic school lunch in our elementary schools and um, and then finally uh, from this autumn one of the elementary schools yeah uh, the organic school lunch was introduced to one of the elementary schools and then they they serve organic rice so yeah. going back to the time scale what motivated you i guess when you get back to tokyo and you're kind of being renewed by this kind of materialistic energy there's kind of an energy in tokyo right yeah what made you then leave that and go back kind of looking for a more rural natural um experience what was that trigger um yeah it was a long time ago so <laughs> i have to sort of remember um so when i came back to japan during the bubble economy period I was in my late twenties, so I was still young, and I I was interested in lots of things, including the materialistic side of life too. But then, as you grow older, you might look into some other things, and then it was um, in, I think okay, in my fourth yeah to, to, yeah from the in my 30s and 40s i i wanted to become a novelist yeah so i was doing a lot of uh writing and novel writing and then through my writing novels i i sort of became interested in spirituality again so i i became interested in the new age movement in england and then i kind of grew out of that movement uh when i came back to japan but in my 30s i regained the interest in the spirituality again and then so i was writing novels uh about kind of based on some of those spiritual ideas and then in oh yeah, yeah. so i remember in 19 1990 was it no 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 was it when was it 2008 2008 yeah yeah uh, there was a riemann shock right so before the riemann shock i had 
many friends who are sort of psychic or they, they could kind of sort of foresee the future. And they're all telling me there's going to be an economic crash and financial crash. And then, in fact, many people are saying that world will be over and so on. And then living in a city can be quite dangerous. We all need to go self-sufficient. So I started looking into uh, moving to the countryside. And then in the meantime, I... Yeah, I encountered a book called The One Straw Revolution by Masanobu Fukuoka. And then, so his idea is to be self-sufficient. Like every person uh, becomes self-sufficient. And then uh, we can solve so many of the problems in the world. Because by, by kind of specializing our occupation like we stop being a farmer and now we have different jobs and we're not self-sufficient that means farmers have to produce a lot of food for other people and that means we need machines we need a bigger run to grow food and so on but if everybody went back to a self-sufficient lifestyle like in the past then you only need to grow enough food for yourself. And then that with that system, you can maintain the sustainability of the world. Yeah. So I became very interested in his idea. And then I moved to Portuguese. And then I started uh, growing vegetables and yeah, started leading this uh, natural lifestyle. Yeah. So yeah, that, that, that's the time when I became interested in farming and yeah. Takamiya-san, um, could you I- elaborate a little bit more on your spiritual journey? Were you looking into Shintoism, Buddhism, Taoism? What specifically um, Christianity, what what was attracting to you? What kind of spiritual practice were you looking at or, or currently have? Yeah, so when I say spirituality, yeah, so I have kind of studied all kind of spirituality throughout my life. So initial encounter, I told you that was a new age movement in Britain. And for those of you who are not familiar with the new age movement, it is a, a kind of a, um, spirit, it's a sort of a effort to study a different spiritual traditions throughout the world. So maybe studying Buddhism, studying Hinduism, or studying Native American spirituality, or studying the the Taoism from China, or even Japanese Zen uh, ideas, and so on, and but including Christianity too, Christianity, and then they not so much. Uh, it, it is an institutionalized religion. There's no guru. There's no one specific um, like a teaching. Yeah, like, like you almost like you study religion in university type of thing. So you kind of study different uh, spiritual concepts and then try to find common ground or try to find some answer that is suitable to you. So in some ways, everybody has different answers. Not like everybody believes in one, like a, one idea. Yeah, people have different philosophies, but 
those philosophy were somewhat similar and somewhat connected. Basically, the, the like parathism, like the idea that you believe in many gods rather than like one god. It's not a monotheistic idea. Yeah. So, so in a way, it was more influenced by Eastern spirituality, such as Buddhism and Hinduism. So, yeah, I encountered that first, but then um, I later realized that there is some contradiction in the New Age movement too. And then um, one contradiction was the commercialism. The whole thing became commercial and became sort of business. Yeah, the way to transform your life was packaged into big seminars and products and so on. And then when the business comes in, the essence is often lost because you have to choose between sticking to your principle or, uh, you know, with a big business ideas. And then the whole movement uh, sifted towards the latter. It became, the thing was, the essence was altered by the business interest type of thing. Yeah. Then So then I realized that it doesn't really matter what the spirituality is. The humans uh, change. Yeah. Because that's what happened with the Christianity too. The original idea was wonderful. I think the time of the Christ, when, um, you know, people followed him was maybe great, but when it became an institution and, and a church was created, and then many people kind of sifted uh, from the essence, and then maybe it wasn't not, not, not so much for business, but kind of uh, protecting the church as the organization, how to govern the church uh, became the bigger priority than keeping the essence of the teaching. I noticed that it is always important to go back to the source or the essence of the spirituality and then um, stay true to that essence. Yeah, and so that require self-reflection all the time, always uh, becoming critical to yourself or your, if you are in the organization, to become critical of your organ organization, to look at if there are any contradiction. And then if you find contradiction, you, you're flexible enough to change it. So Takemiya-san, would you say that goes against kind of the stereotype of Japanese conformity? I just wonder yeah. where you have that flexibility from, because I, I read a lot of your writing and it seems great that you're able to self-reflect and, you know, change. You went to Australia, you picked up some things, you went to the UK, you picked up some things, come to Japan, enjoy some of the materialism, go on a spiritual path. You're always selecting, editing, choosing, taking, you know, coming back, reforming. So I, I really appreciate that in your work. So I'm just wondering where you get that freedom from. Right. Yeah. I think I'm very unique person in Japan. I'm very different from the uh, majority of the Japanese people. Um, so yeah, Japan is very confirmed society, as you said. Yeah. Most people, um, don't think like I do. Um, 
I, I suppose I had always been like that. Well, yeah. So I think I, I wrote that in my book too, The Ikigai Biohacking, that when I was 14, I, so, so I was, I grew up in Tokyo, but when I was 14, I lived in Nagano Prefecture, which is uh, the countryside, the mountainous part of Japan. And I did a kind of homestay with a local family in a small village. So farmer's family, yeah. And this family was leading this traditional Japanese uh, farming lifestyle. Yeah. So for the first time in my life, I experienced what I call the Satoyama lifestyle. It's a rural lifestyle in the countryside. And, um, and then I, experience uh, what happiness was. I felt very happy. Right. So at that time, yeah, I felt happy. And then when I started seeking for happiness, how I, uh, you know, how I could maintain that happiness and then how I could change the society to be happy. So uh, I was 14 at that time. Then in my teens, when I was in high school, like from 16 to 18, I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, social happiness and personal happiness and how to achieve it. And then I um, kind of dreamed about building a utopia or ideal school, ideal town or ideal country and so on. And even, and then I didn't really get into the typical uh, Japanese this um, we call the Juken, which is a, in, studying for the entrance examination of university. Because most high school students were busy just studying for the exams. And then, but I didn't study for the exams. And on the contrary, I refused to even uh, take the exam. I mean, I, I took exams in like uh, school exams, but I didn't, you know, try to get high score. I sometimes uh, submitted my test uh, without writing anything on purpose because I, I didn't believe in the whole system of examination. How did you yeah. keep that individual kind of spirit? I mean, the pressure in Japan from the juku and the, I'm just curious how you were able, were you bullied or were people just kind of like, oh, this guy? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't have any problem with any of my classmates or the teachers for some reason. Well, I, I kind of go on with my friend. I, I also play soccer. Uh, so usually if you are doing sports or if you are in a kind of a sports club, you're not really buried because you, you're kind of a physically, you know, strong enough to be buried. And so I didn't get into any fight. And, and, and our school was, um, yeah, I think all my classmates are sort of friendly and, and you know, there, there was no worries in our class. Either, yeah. And then for the teachers, it was kind of strange, but I think teachers avoided me. They felt I was a little difficult student to deal with because I, I, I wrote an essay um, once in my competition class, and that was to, yeah, I basically wrote about creating this utopia type of thing. So I said, I, I was not going to university, but I would create this utopia. So the teacher who read it and maybe gave it to 
my head teacher. So maybe head teacher was a little afraid of me. So usually in high school, uh, head teacher speak to every student about your course, what you're going to do after high school, like whether you're going to university, you're going to get a job, you're going to special school. You, you, you should have a one-on-one sort of session with each student and talk about your future. But he wouldn't come to me. I was the only person in class that head teacher did not speak about our future. So until I graduate, he didn't know what I was going to do. I, I think he just avoided talking with me because he was very afraid of me. It wasn't just like he, maybe because he, he thought uh, I would convince him. I would, I was capable of bringing the rational argument to convince that whole system was wrong and I, I was right. And he, he knew it, yet being in the system, he couldn't do anything about it. But then he was very afraid of maybe confronting me to, uh, to, to change my mind or anything. I, I don't know why, but. No, no, I, I understand. Of, it's, 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 it's almost like you're a mirror towards the conformity. And I mean, you're like, I, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Matrix, but you're offering the red pill or the, you know, the blue pill, and he doesn't want to yeah. take it, I guess. It's interesting right, because, yeah. you know, I, I keep focusing on your youth because now that I know about this, the work you're doing now is an attempt to build that utopia, it seems. You're offering a lot of solutions to self-improvement, to societal improvement. I don't know if you see those parallels. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. I mean, for the utopia thing... um yeah, I was still naive in my teens. And then um, I did go to Findafong community in Scotland, which was a little like a utopia. Yet uh, there are some problems there too. I mean, there, there are many villages around the world now, which are in some way like utopias, like utopian communities. And some of them are really great. I think maybe moving to those places one solution. Yeah. Because it's kind of a secluded place and you're not in the real society, I felt uh, unless you change the society, uh, there won't be a utopia. I mean, you can create a little small utopia, yet it's just only as, only that place. You need to have a sort of a social impact on other area too. So in my, in my 20s, I went to Findahom, but since then, I changed my mind about creating a utopia like that. Yeah, I wanted to change the society itself. But now, I don't think I can change the society. I'm not that naive either. So I just do what I can do to just... I don't know, doing my part of making that small change. Because this is the collection of many people's work. I alone cannot change the society, but many people can. So millions of people can change the society together. So I'm just doing my part, my small, tiny part of the transformation. That kind of brings us to where we are 
with your book right now because I, I, you know, I like I said, I found you through Nato, but then I, I ordered your books, the Ikai uh, Biohacking and the Diet book. Maybe you can just give us a, a framework for what kind of that personal project is. Right. So the Ikigai Biohacking is a, basically a book about biohacking, which means like changing yourself to stay young and healthy until you die. Yeah. And but um the difference between Ikigai biohacking and regular biohacking is one is it is completely natural. Ikigai biohacking is also called Shizenha biohacking. Therefore, it is a natural biohacking. So that means uh, we do kind of natural methods such as fasting or changing our diet, exercises, or do things like a deliberate heat exposure or cold exposure, such as, you know, sauna and cold shower and so on. But do not do anything artificial, such as putting, uh, you know, like sort of implant in your body to measure your health condition and stuff like that, or doing any kind of genetic engineering things. Yeah. Uh, so 100% natural. And then uh, another difference is that the purpose, the goal of biohacking. Uh, I think biohacking itself is a very big harm, and many people do it differently. So there's no one set of goals for regular biohacking, but many people seems to want to expand their lifespan. So meaning they want to live to 140 or 150. Yeah. And then, but I'm not interested in expanding our lifespan. I'm very ha happy to die at the age of 100 or age of 120. I think so far, humans are capable of living close to 120 because there are people who have lived to that age. And even now, there are people who've lived over 110. Like some centenarians are 115. Yeah. So maybe that is capable. So I would like to stay young and healthy until that age, until our else lifespan. But I don't want to necessarily expand that lifespan yeah um this is because why do you want to do it like why do you want to live to 150 for example if there is a specific reason then it's okay but if there is no specific purpose then there's no point yeah and then one thing is missing or one thing is not talked about is what happens after you die? One thing is not talked about in biohacking is what happens after you die. Yeah, people talk about they want to expand their lifespan and live long, live longer. Yeah. So what happens when you die eventually? Because you will die, even though if you extend your lifespan to 150, you will die. Then what happens? Yeah. So whether you believe in life after this makes a big difference yeah so it doesn't mean you need to believe in life after death but if you believe in life after death then you also want to prepare for that too so you don't want to only think about uh, staying young and healthy until you die 
Yeah, you also want to, I don't know, mm, feel happier in afterlife. Yeah, so that means when you do biohacking practices, you want to work on your body, of course, to stay healthy, but also you want to work on your spirituality too. You want to um, kind of, a, yeah, you, you want to sort of work on your soul to be in good shape so that you can die beautifully and then uh, lead your next life uh, appropriately. Yeah. And so, but this, I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying it's a kind of reincarnation that Buddhists say. I mean, different, different people have different uh, spirituality. So even if you're a Christian, yeah, um, you, you believe that you might go to heaven and then, um, but also how you live in this lifetime is very important as a Christian. Yeah. You want to practice unconditional love and um yeah uh grow yourself spiritually too too so if that is the case then you want to spend the latter part of your life focusing on that spirituality too you don't want to just focus on your body only but also a spirit so the body mind spirit and the planet are four important elements in ikigai biohacking so we try to optimize those four area as much as possible to stay young healthy and meaningfully like yeah, yeah young healthy and spiritual uh, to lead meaningful remaining life because ikigai means a kind of a um life purpose or something to motivate your life but ikigai really means uh, iki is a life and a guy is a value or worth so life that is worth leading to is ikigai so at the time of your dying at the end of your life uh, i want to feel that this life was worth living this life was valuable. That's how I would like to die. So I want to spend the rest of my life to fulfill that. So living meaningfully, living with Ikigai is as critical as staying young and healthy. Takamiya-san, could you summarize maybe just a quick point or two, like the diet, the exercise, the spiritual practice, and then the community planet? What do you do for yeah. each one? Just a quick overview for people who don't have time to read the book. Right, yeah, sure. Um, so you can, to stay healthy, yeah, you can change your diet. You can practice fasting, exercise, and so on. Yeah, so there is no one specific method. I mean, you can you can choose whatever you like basically whatever you feel most comfortable and whatever is the optim optimal for you but uh, what i do for example so i practice uh, what i call the ikigai diet which is based on uh natural japanese dietary practice yeah 
So mostly plant-based, but not 100%. We eat a lot of fish, for example. And then, but it's a fiber-rich diet. We eat a lot of vegetables and beans, mushrooms, and so on. So it's a very fiber-rich diet. And also it is very balanced. So it's not, we're not eliminating one type of nutrients, such as, you know, eliminating carbs and stuff like that. So it's not low carb, it's not low protein, um, basically a mixture of everything, a carb, protein, fat, minerals, vitamins, everything's important, but having a good balance is critical. Yeah. So, and then, but then the Ikigai diet isn't necessarily a Japanese diet. You can practice the Ikigai diet in any uh, country's dietary culture. Yeah, so you can use your own food, own ingredients to practice the Ikigai diet, having a balanced diet. And then I practice what I call Hare and K intermittent fasting, um, which I do about 17 hours fast, but only during the week, just five days a week. And on the weekend, I don't fast. So I have three meals. And then, so Hare and Ke uh, in Japanese means Hare is the festival period and Ke is a usual period. So Ke is more kind of a disciplined time when you lead more frugal, simple lifestyle. But Hare, you enjoy your life and you celebrate, you have a feast. So I divide uh, the week between and honey. So the during the week is K period and the weekend is honey. Yeah. Therefore, I only practice intermittent fasting during the week and don't on the weekend. And then during the week, I try to stay uh, on a plant-based diet as much as possible. I mean, I do eat fish too, but, but not, not meat. But on the weekend, including include some animal-based uh, food. Um, is to, to, to just take a break from the disciplined period. Yeah. And then for the exercises, um, you can do both aerobic exercises and strength training, but it is better if you can, um, do it in nature, like outdoor, like so go Nordic walking or go jogging outside and then to do a strength training maybe it's better to do a body weight uh training rather than lifting weight and so on because in oriental uh martial art uh, it is important to relax your muscles too muscle needs to be flexible so you don't want to tense up your muscles too much yeah so so there's there some other but most mostly fasting diet and some exercises. Are you uh, measuring, you know, there's the famous biohacker, uh, what's his name, Brian Kaplan. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him with the Blueprint Diet. Brian Kaplan. No, no, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, he's famous. He's spending like two or three million dollars a year biohacking and he tracks every metric and he has like doctors measuring his blood and 
basically tracking everything he can, like, you know, yeah. measuring the density of his bones, you know, cholesterol, you know, hundreds of medical metric mar markers and proving them all. And yeah. it's an interesting approach. I'm just curious what you're measuring. How do you know what you're doing is working? What's not working? How do you re self reflect from um, a body or spiritual practice? I mean, do you oh, yeah. sleep yeah. analysis or what are you measuring? Yeah, I, I don't measure so much personally. Uh, I'm not against measuring either, uh, but I don't need to measure uh, be because I can feel if it is. I mean, of course, I have a regular, um, like a, a what is a checkup in the hospital because we have a medical checkup at the hospital once a year. So I I do take that, and then so far I have not had any problems in the medical checkup. I'm 61 years old now, and I have not had any medical checkup. And they, they give you a kind of a detailed analysis of uh, different elements, and then everything was okay. So I don't do any extra uh, checkup to uh, do a more like a, a thorough checkup, which is done in some of those like a blood test type of uh, thing. Yeah. And I don't do a DNA uh check and stuff like that um partly because um i i don't feel i need to do that because you can kind of feel and you you can also look at your yeah just like a your general your, your general health i mean if you feel bad you would notice it yeah and then um the the the, the problem with some of those checkup is Number one, when you give a blood sample and do a like a DNA checkup, that means that company will have information about your DNA too. I'm not saying the company will use it, you know, um, wrongly, but you you never know. You never know. But now you may be safe, but. This company can be changed. The owner of the company can be changed. And then if bigger corporations start doing that, which uh, I think they are, they are getting into this uh, field. So you'll be uh, letting those big companies have your personal medical data. And nobody knows if it's protected uh, safely or not. Because in a way, it is possible to make you sick if you have the information about your DNA. Because by just feeding, you know, the, this particular type of nutrient in your food, then you can maybe make someone sick by having that kind of data. Takami, I was gonna that was gonna link to originally you said one of the differences between your biohacking and other forms of biohacking is that it's a hundred percent natural. Maybe you can yeah. elaborate. I see there's some concern about, you know, DNA privacy or health privacy. Um, yeah. What is your skepticism towards, quote, artificial biohacking, you know, using new chemicals or using, you know, a lot of people take natto IK's supplements instead of eating natto. I'm curious right. Yeah, what you think about those differences and where that concern comes from. Yeah. So, yeah, before going into supplement, uh, about this testing, let's say if it is safe, if those companies won't do anything wrong, yeah, um, still, 
you'll be relying on the, the, the data all the time. And then in the oriental medicine, we had ways to measure ourselves, such as taking your pulse or like checking, the touching your belly or even looking at someone's face and you can tell uh, the different sort of symptoms in your body. And also in acupuncture or shiatsu, we have meridians, which are line of energy. And then by feeding the meridian, you could tell the condition of your internal organs too. So we had all those abilities and we just have a personal gut feeling of your yourself too. But once we start using those devices to constantly measure using uh, medical, like using a de- data from the kind of Western medical point of view, you might lose that natural sense you have. Because if we don't practice anything, we lose the ability. The ability can deteriorate. Yeah, can degenerate if we don't use it. So one uh, danger of constantly measuring yourself uh, is that you might lose your natural ability to feel your condition. Yeah. And then for the supplement, I mean, if you need to take supplement, yeah, sure, you can take it. And especially for people who have a certain condition, certain medical condition, and then you have a deficiency in certain nutrient, then you do need to have additional amount of that particular nutrient, which you may not be able to acquire from food. So you do need to take supplement. But for most people, food is enough. Food contains enough nutrient. And then the advantage of um observing nutrient from food is that food contain many other type of nutrient. So you're not taking one nutrient alone. You're taking one nutrient with many other nutrients and they have a synthetic uh, effect. So even though the amount may be small, that is sufficient. I mean, that is sufficient or that is natural. That's what we have been um, observing throughout our life. And I mean, no animals take supplement. And then even centenarians, centurions don't take supplement. They just eat only food. And they lived long without taking supplement. So my question is, why do we need to take supplement? Maybe it is more optimal, but we don't need. Well, I think the counter would be that people are concerned about the nutrient density in food. There's been a degradation of the um, nutrient density in soil. So some oh, people, yeah, right, yeah. you know, the, the, the worsening environmental conditions require almost supplementation because it's been ruined through fertilizer use or whatnot. Um, right. Keeping yeah, on the, yeah. uh, me, I was going to keep on your criticism of kind of the technological I'm curious yeah. what you think. I, I read one of your blog posts where you're writing about the singularity. I'm curious yeah. what many biohackers are, I agree with you, kind of obsessed with longevity, trying to reach the singularity. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, number one, I don't have a technological background, so I don't know much about singularity and 
you know, the AI and a whole, you know, not in a kind of a technical sense. I don't understand the, you know, the mechanism of it. Um, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I feel there is a corporate interest, interest toward the shifting our society to singularity, the more like AI, AI kind of centered, uh, world or what they call the smart city or smart society. And I think health and, uh, longevity is kind of packaged into that whole realm by including, let, let's say, uh, everything can be, yeah, everything can be measured through the, the, the technology and technical devices. And then, uh, we, so more, more and more, we have a risk of being controlled by a few corporations who have all the data. And then, or it could be controlled by AI too. We don't know. I don't think many biohackers are doing it deliberately. Yeah. But by joining this whole culture, you might indirectly support that, the, the growth of that side. Yeah, which can be dangerous. Therefore, in some ways, it is critical to stay, stay natural and then kind of be independent from that framework of biohacking. No, I, I think that's an important point, which connects to my next question. Uh, Takamiya, do you ever think these movements or biohacking have kind of cult-like behavior and how do you um, keep away from that kind of danger? What are the dangers in these kind of movements? You know, well, the group I suppose uh, cult-like, yeah. Um, I suppose any kind of movement, yeah, it can become a cult. Once you, I don't know, once you, like a frog, uh, yeah, with one another and then with a camp or a group, and then you you get influenced by others very much. So the the, the other thing about like 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 a taking blood test, I mean the, the doing the blood test sort of thing. Um, like if one person start doing it, and then maybe two or three people follow that, and then soon after everybody start doing it as if it is the a fashionable thing. Well, as if this is the kind of new thing. And then people don't question so much about the drawback of that. So because some uh, influential, you know, figures are doing it, they feel uh, maybe it is the way to go. But um, so because of this kind of trend sort of thing, um, in some ways, that has not been tested. If that is safe or not, has not been tested because it becomes a fashion and many people just jump into this new lifestyle and then start doing it without asking too many questions. Yeah. So I think that, that is a danger of uh, a movement like this. But it can happen in any other movement too. Not, not it isn't unique to biohacking movement. Focusing on the positive, then Takamaya, do you have any case studies of people who have been following some of your books, or you know, you have your naturalist group 
you meet with once a month. I'm just curious if there are any case studies of people who have changed their life that you want to share. Um, I have not actually followed so much of different cases, or at least haven't sort of done any test on how they've changed. But I have had a lot of responses to my book and also my YouTube videos that people have, you know, applied natto into their diet and they've applied some fermented brown rice into their life into their diet and so on and then uh, they, they they changed um their health i mean they feel much better now and so on but i i don't have a specific sort of a case that for example someone who had this disease cured this disease and that kind of thing uh no but in general anecdotal uh, sort of sharing uh, the people have expressed that uh, they do feel better after practicing the ikigai diet and ikigai biohacking. Many, many people say it is easy to practice um, because of this flexibility. For example, Harry and Kay intermittent fasting, you don't need to do that every single day. You can take a break on the weekend, and many people express that is a very a doable approach. And then one of your main proponents is natto. Um, obviously, in Japan, natto is well known. What are for people who aren't familiar with natto? What is natto? Why is it so important? Why do you advocate for it? I obviously am a big fan, but curious on your thoughts on that. Right. Yeah. So natto is fermented soybeans. Yeah. So basically, you ferment soybeans and then. But it has so many health benefits, yeah? In fact, natto was selected to be the healthiest food among the top 10 healthiest food by 300 Japanese doctors, yeah? And they picked natto because natto can help prevent you from cancer, diabetes, and different kind of heart diseases, and so on. And generally, Natto has several components. Um, one is natto king, that is a natto bacteria. The official name is a Bacillus subtilis. Yeah, you use this bacteria to ferment soybeans to make natto. Yeah, but this Bacillus subtilis is a very strong bacteria and it can survive extreme heat and cold. Yeah, and therefore it is said to survive the gastric acid when it goes through your, you know, digestive uh, course and then can reach the intestine. And it is a probiotic. So this probiotic can reach the gut and then can coordinate the composition of the gut microbiome. So natto is wonderful for your gut health. And also, Natto has a component called natto kinase, uh, which helps uh, your blood flow and blood circulation and also prevent uh, blood clots. Yes. Therefore, natto kinase is good for, um, it kind of prevents you from heart disease. So it's good for your heart health and blood flow. And then also, natto contains something called vitamin K2. Um, vitamin K2 is good for your bone and bone density. And then when you 
get old, avoiding all those diseases are critical, but also you want to protect yourself from getting injured. And then falling is often a big uh, cause of injury. Uh, and then that can lead to bedridden situation and, and that can eventually, uh, you know, develop um, other diseases and you might die. So falling, the injury from falling is uh, one of the biggest causes of death among the senior citizens. Yeah. And then having strong bones and strong muscles can protect you from falling. Therefore, natokinase uh, can help you develop your bone density. And natto is a protein powerhouse too. It contains uh, one of the highest amount of protein among the plant-based protein sources. So if you are a vegan, um, yeah, nat natto definitely is a go-to food for your protein. And also, natto is generally considered to be good for the skin. So to stay young and kind of remain the sort of smooth skin, and natto is definitely good. So natto has just so many benefits. And then um, I don't know. I mean, there are lots of super food out there, but I don't know any other food that has so many uh, benefits in just one one food. Yeah. Uh, Takamiya-san, are there any yeah. practices that you engage that you don't share in your books or writing that you're maybe you consider esoteric or strange or... You know, I'm just curious if there's anything you're practicing that you don't share. The practices that I do that I yes. haven't shared in my books, in the books maybe because um, there was a limited space in the book and I, you know, didn't write everything. Um, yeah, I, I do. I I do some. I do some kind of qigong practice, which uh, I call a standing meditation. Yeah. Um, so I, I do it. Uh, Usually, when I, when I practice thirty six hours fast, I I usually I I do different kind of a fasting practice. I kind of change once every three months. Yeah, uh, and then at the moment I'm doing uh, thirty six hours fast once a week, and then the seventeen hours fast the rest of the five days. Yeah. And then when I come out of the 36 hours fast, I always do the standing meditation. Because um, when you have a, a long break in your gap, um, you, you're, you're working a lot to your gut microbiome. And then this standing meditation uh, is very helpful for your gut health and your sort of belly area. And then you can kind of focus on your berry area as you practice standing meditation to sort of feel the key energy. So that's something I do. Uh, yeah, once a week. Many things that I have not necessarily expressed in my book, but um, but you, you you get the basic idea of the principle of the ikigai biohacking about this balance among the four area, you know, the physical health, mental health, spiritual health, and planetary health, and staying kind of committed to the natural method. Yeah. And also having the mentality. Yeah. 
And I, I also kind of talked about it in the book too. But one thing, um, maybe the API biohacking is different from other biohacking is that the mentality that we try to not necessarily optimize everything. Yeah, because we have a saying called hara hachibume, which means uh, finish eating when you're 80% full. You don't need to fill up. You just leave a little space. Yeah, but that can be said for anything, for any kind of activity, not only just eating. So you don't want to optimize everything. You want to leave a little space, like 20%, yeah, so that that 20% can be optional for you to kind of play around. Well, if you make everything perfect, then there is no space to play around. And then sometimes you, you cannot have four all areas perfectly. If you make your physical biohacking optimal, like let's say you find the best uh, aerobic exercise, the best diet, best fasting method, yeah, maybe you burn out your energy working on the physical side. You have no time and energy left for mental growth, spiritual growth, and planetary growth. So having this a little less than the perfect, like sort of 80%, you try to achieve 80% best in all area, you have a more balance, and you can uh, work holistically. You can work on all four areas. Yeah. Takamiya-san, my last two questions are, one of the things I never really saw you write about in any of your blog posts or... I'm just curious how as a naturalist and as a biohacker, how the how was the COVID experience for you in Japan? Oh yeah. So um the naturalists usually, yeah, they're they're kind of a, a anti like a regular COVID measures, which means uh they're not into vaccines and they're not into wearing masks and so on. Um although the one thing about Japanese people, uh, Japanese people don't like to argue and kind of fight. So we didn't see a lot of confrontation that I see in the West between the you know anti-vaccine people and pro-vaccine people. So like and also that that was to do with our the national policy too. The vaccine was not compulsory. So you had a choice not to uh, to be vaccinated. Yeah. Well, in some other countries, it was a compulsory, so you didn't have a choice. So the people maybe had a much stronger opinion uh, about it. Well, in Japan, it was, you still had a choice. So people who are against the vaccine, uh, they just, I choose not to take one, but it doesn't mean they have to criticize the one who do. So I think the vast majority of people were kind of open to both ideas. I mean, it's like a, people sort of felt 
that is an individual decision to make. So if you don't want to take a vaccine, then yeah, yeah that, that's sure. But if you want to take a vaccine, that is also okay. So people sort of respected each other's uh, decisions. Yeah. I mean, of course, there are uh, kind of a people who are absolutely against the vaccine and they criticize the people who supported the whole thing and then the vice versa the pro-vaccine people really criticize people who didn't take vaccine and so on but compared to the west i think that's um, a few people and the majority of the people uh respected each other's decision no, I agree with you. It's just when I went to Japan this summer, it felt much more relaxed in terms of individual choice, which I thought was ironic based on Japan usually having kind of a group think, and then the West actually felt more oppressive in the group think as an individualistic society. So maybe it just comes back like what you said, people don't want to fight. So they just kind of respected each other's private decisions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was very surprised with this uh the western sort of a phenomenon really because especially in america was very individualistic and then people are tolerant to uh, of you know diverse ideas and lifestyles so all of a sudden during the covid it all changed kind of divided into sort of two worlds and and then became very sort of passionate about uh, each you know others point of view as if there was kind of a mass hysteria or something. And yeah, I was very, very surprised. That probably happened everywhere in the world, including Japan too. There there was some sort of mass hysteria uh, for for a certain degree too. Well, I think your experience always being, I don't take this, I I take this as a compliment. You, You seem like an outsider. So maybe you were able to resist some of that mass hysteria. You know, when you went to Australia, you could look at the lens or the West and you came back. You're always kind of viewing things from inside and outside, which I I respect. And that seems like a positive trait. Some people who don't have that ability to self-reflect can't acknowledge that they're in a group think, possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that sense, I was lucky. And also, I was lucky that I didn't, you know... I I don't work for a company or anything like that, so I, I could still choose uh, my, my my lifestyle. If, if you worked for a company thing, then you have to, you know, comprise to what they they say a lot more. Yeah, very interesting. What is your current really interest right now? You've written the books. Are you writing a new book? Or is there anything particularly new fiction? What are you working on? Yeah, I'm not working on any particular book uh, at the moment, um, but I, I I might do some writing later on. But I think my, my focus now is to kind of spread uh, this, you know, message, uh, meaning the Ikigai diet, Ikigai biohacking, and, and NATO as well, yeah, uh, to the world as much as possible. So I'm kind of focusing on my YouTube at the moment. I'm kind of uh, uploading three videos a week. Uh, before I was only uploading one one video a week, so and it does take a lot of time to actually make one video, um, you know, three times a week. Yeah, so through YouTube and you know the opportunity like this, I mean, thank you very much for having this opportunity. This is wonderful for me. I mean, I'd like to reach as many people as possible to talk about uh, those things. So 
um, yeah, this is exactly the kind of opportunity I would like to have. Yeah. So through YouTube, through, you know, appearing people's podcast and um, go through the publication of my books, I'd like to spread is not a really good idea, but I'd like to share this information and maybe exchange with other people to kind of uh, think together uh, how we can help ourselves to stay young, healthy, and happy, and how we can uh, help our society stay healthy and happy too. And then, Takamiya-san, uh, how can people yeah. find you? What's the best oh, yeah. way? Your YouTube channel or what's the best way? Yeah, YouTube channel is one, which is called the Ikigai Diet channel. Yeah, so I upload videos three times a week. Usually, American time, it's Monday night, Wednesday night, and Friday night. And then you can also find my website, the Ikigai, ikigaidiet.com. Yeah, uh, so I write some blogs there. Um, but more recently, yeah, YouTube is more frequent than the blog post in the ikigaidiet.com. Yeah, I also have a newsletter. Yeah, and in the ikigai diet.com website there is a, a kind of icon saying get the super food list get the super food list and then it will take you to the site of my newsletter and if you sign up with my newsletter you can receive the super food list and also receive uh, my newsletter which is sent about three times a week great well i'll, I'll link to all of those in the show notes um oh, sense. and then my last question do you have anything else you'd like to share or any other wisdom or points of clarity um no that's okay but i i'd like to kind of ask you a question too about hawaii and natto because so you you eat natto yourself and you make natto uh from natural startup but you said life is uh, rice is not available so how do you make natto what, what plant do you use Oh, I don't make my own starter. I, I I buy the commercial available starter. I see. Right. Yeah. No, I was doing research on how to, um, you know, try to make my own starter, but it, it's just I haven't had success with that yet. Yeah. Right. And then is natto sold a lot in Hawaii? Ah, uh, yeah. There's a huge Japanese and Japanese American community here. You can get natto at any supermarket, but it's I there's see. there's a local natto company here making. There's a Hawaii a few Hawaii nattos. Um, oh yeah, but I I still prefer to make my own because either they use preservatives or you know I try to get the highest quality soybean possible, and right. yeah, especially you know there's a lot of preservatives in the cost and uh, you know hard to trust some of the production, especially in Japan. The Japanese companies, even if it says organic, it you know it might be GMO um, soybean, and it's very hard right. to know the sourcing. Yeah. I see. Okay, okay. Oh, but th that's good that you can get hold of natto easily in Hawaii. Yeah. So it's not like some other part of the United States. No, here I don't know if you've been to Hawaii, but it, I mean, literally, something like twenty percent of the population is Japanese descent. Yeah. Right. So yeah, there's many philosophies that you know in the food. Yeah, Hawaii is Japanese people come to Hawaii because they're basically, you know, it's America but Japan, <laughs> right? It's very similar. Oh, I see. So they like that, right. and yeah. you know. And you you were involved in kind of food industry before, you said. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. And then uh, it's ironic because my family has a business making commercial rent it. I don't know if you know that what that is, but um, it, it's basically bacterial products and yeast products for making cheese. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've been dealing with um, Japanese suppliers uh, almost 80 years now. Yeah. So I, I have a, my family has a history with kind of, you know, these natural food products as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not natto, oh, though. Okay. Natto, I, I, you know, I, I've been eating for 20 years, but uh, just, you know, getting experience and, you know, wisdom from things all over the world we, we try to find. Yeah. Oh, oh great. Great, uh, Takamiya-san. I really appreciate your time. Have a wonderful week, and I look forward to your next video, and I'll be in contact. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I'm really, I really appreciate it. Okay, great. Arigatouzaimasu. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, arigatouzaimasu. Tomo.